1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and we're running a little late today, but we're here. This week, we're doing something a little different. This is another history-literature crossover episode, and it follows on from episode 2.8, where I talked about 19th century mental institutions and the Victorian perception of madness in women. If you haven't heard that one yet, definitely check it out. It's heavy, but it'll add a lot of context to what we're talking about today. Our guest is Dr. Nicole Dittmer, author of the new book, Monstrous Women and Ecofeminism in the Victorian Gothic, 1837-1871. to 1871. Following on from that episode about madness, we were talking more about the Victorian view of women and how the archetype of the domestic angel was created to control them. Why? Well, women, yes, all women, were perceived as inherently dangerous and mentally ill, and Victorian men were terrified of them. If women weren't married and kept busy with domestic duties and countless children, who knows what they might do? Gothic fiction of the time reflected these fears, casting light on the unfair treatment of women, as in Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights, or imagining what might happen if women weren't strictly controlled. They could become hysterical, Nymphomaniacs, criminals, or even werewolves? I don't know, guys. I think that sounds kind of cool. So, today we're talking about the Victorian view of women, and in the second half, we're looking at how that influenced gothic fiction of the time. It's funny, it's disturbing, it's deeply, deeply nerdy, and I hope you enjoy it. A word of caution, however this episode comes with another content warning. Not that I think a lot of you are turning into werewolves, although if you are, honestly, teach me. But some of the things that we're talking about are pretty disturbing. We briefly mentioned female genital mutilation in a medical context, which was not uncommon in the 1850s, as well as the practice of locking women up in their own homes when they were sick or perceived to be mentally ill. This actually happened a lot, and it's pretty upsetting to think about. If you've ever read The Yellow Wallpaper, well, that's what that's about. But it's not all bad. We also talk about Tom Hardy and the appeal of leaving society altogether and running straight into the woods, which is honestly sounding better and better every day. Having said that, it's a great conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Here's my interview with Dr. Nicole Dittmer. My guest today is Dr. Nicole Dittmer, author of Monstrous Women and Ecofeminism in the Victorian Gothic, 1837 to 1871. Welcome, Nicole. Hi, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. Gosh, I cannot tell you how much I love this book. It is absolutely incredible and completely mind blowing. I have so many questions and I hope that we can get to them all. So (laughs) I want to start, of course, with the, uh, the link between women and nature. You make the point that in the Victorian period, female sexuality was linked to nature as something that was unpredictable and wild to be feared and ultimately controlled women's desires were seen as inherently strange or irregular, which had me kind of scratching my head. Like, how can it be atypical if we are 50% of the population?
0: Okay, so when it comes to women in nature during the Victorian period, there are very different approaches um, to the term nature itself. In in my text, I look at the concept of Spinoza's uh, monism, where it takes nature as a singular entity or what he calls a singular substance. And it could be either God or nature. However, in my text, obviously I focus on nature and anything under that singular nature substance, we're all interconnected, so to speak. So basically women were viewed as being part of, of that nature. So that's one of the concepts. The other concept that I that I approach heavily in my text is the concept of human nature or women's inherent nature, and you may think about uh, behavioralism when you hear the term human instincts or human nature. However, in the Victorian period, it was a little bit more um, one-sided than that. When they discuss the concept of female nature or inherent female instincts, they're aligning everything to the reproductive system. They are very um, fanatical or obsessed with female reproductivity in in the 19th century. And yes, um, you're talking about 50% of the population being women. However, there were um, fears of the overabundance of women in the Victorian period as well. Uh, For example, William Rathbone uh, Gregg, he was an an English essayist. He actually wrote uh, an essay called Why Are Women Redundant? Um, there (laughs) There was a fear of the overwhelming number of women during the period. They actually outnumbered the men. So because of that increase, it conflated all their ideologies of how men were supposed to be the superior, they were supposed to be the authoritative, they were supposed to be the ones in control. So needless to say, women, as we know, we're not irregular people. We are regular people we are typical we're not atypical there's nothing fundamentally wrong with us however because of this fear of the female redundancy or what they call the um the metamorphic biology of women there was this ingrained fear that there would be an uprising and destruction of the whole patriarchal system so to speak oh no that would be (laughs) such a shame (laughs) Oh, and uh, what like, would happen right
1: yeah yeah oh my gosh that kind of uh answers my next question i was wondering what they were so afraid of but they were they were actually afraid that we were going to kind of rise up and take control
0: <laughs> well it was it was it was kind of common it, it's definitely a control issue that's you could see that throughout history you know the male were always always seen as predominant and women were always the submissives however they also had another fear that came about towards the mid to late Victorian period. Charles Darwin, which I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with. He did a lot of studies um, on tribes and basically later in the 19th century, they started coming up with this concept of degeneration theory. And they're talking about uh, your biological system, breaking down, um, the corruption of, of your lineage, so to speak. So basically what they were afraid of were these corrupt women who were now seen as rebellious and intellectual and just powerful. They had a feeling that something would happen with these women where they would corrupt their children. So they would Mm -hmm. no longer produce these pure Victorian children. They would start producing these monstrous uh, children, so to speak.
1: And uh, was there some class anxiety involved in that as well? Like
0: wondering about who the father is, I suppose? Oh, absolutely. There, was, um, there were several different anxieties going on in the period. Um, in my book, I didn't really touch on the whole class issue, like uh, the working class. I specifically focused on the middle and the upper class because um, gothic fiction during that time was targeted towards uh, middle-class women. However, um, in the text that I focus on too, It was all of the women in those Gothic fictions that I look at were all considered middle-class women. They weren't supposed to be corruptible. They were supposed to be untouchable. They were kind of put on that pedestal.
1: Speaking of putting people on a pedestal during this time, and certainly after, and you talk about this in the book, uh, women tend to be categorized as quote virgins or whores. The idea being that women who complied with society's guidelines for femininity were the like embodiment of virtue. They were domestic angels with no personality of their own and no desire outside of looking after their husbands and their children. So this was pushed as women's natural state. And to some point, it still is. But what really struck me is that despite what people still tell us, that's not the way it's always been. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit more about how the idea of the virgin or domestic angel was invented as a means of control and how it was ultimately adopted by Victorian society?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So basically, I looked at a lot of um, texts within the early to mid-Victorian period because I wanted to, I didn't look at the the origin of this, but I wanted to see where it started flourishing during that mm-hmm. period. There were a lot of texts going about. There were so many, like Sarah Stickney Ellis was one of, she used to write conduct manuals for women on how to mm-hmm. behave, how to be the proper woman, how to be the proper wife, how to essentially just live for your children and your husband, no individuality. And then if you look at the medical texts, um, Forbes Winslow in uh, 1853 started creating medical texts, which were not too far from the conduct books that Ellis was creating. So here you have guidelines on how to be the proper woman compared with the medical discourse of physiology, psychology, that talk about If you continue to be the proper woman, you'll be fine medically. There will be nothing wrong with you. Only if you don't exercise, you don't excite yourself. If you marry properly, if your uterus or ovaries don't get overexcited, you won't have (laughs) hysterical moments. Um, So if you look, there is a, a consistent feedback loop that occurs between all of the discourses during that period. And they essentially, it's not a consistent feedback loop where it's just a a static moment there's actual momentum so as a piece of fiction is created that talks about the degeneracy or the monstrosities of women you'll find uh, a follow-up of a medical text that precedes that that talks about oh if if this woman acts this way or rebels she could break down and go into uh hysterical uh exhibitions it's just it's just an ongoing process. And as far as the origins go, I did look at this a little bit and there was a lot of theology-based morals that were were implemented in a lot of the conduct books and the guidelines that um, had women as angels, um, which Mm -hmm. you can actually see from Covetry Pat Moore's uh, poem, The Angel in the House which is what solidified that whole angel term
1: it's interesting um how do i put this just that the the mental and the sort of medical side they were so connected you know like if if you behave this right way then you won't have any medical problems absolutely yeah and
0: there's um there's actually quite a a bit of information that i had researched during that time that was that even shocked me. I, I love the Gothic, I love horror. I never thought anything would amaze me uh, in that sense, but it was absolutely terrifying to read how how women were treated during that time.
1: Definitely, and I'm gonna ask you about that in a second. Um, some of that I found completely shocking. But on the flip side of this, you know, virgin and whore dichotomy. If women did not conform to these impossible expectations, she was seen as literally monstrous, right? Yes, absolutely. Um Or or they're they're called whores as opposed to virgins. The idea that unauthorized sexual desire was something to be feared, and as you said, could bring about the kind of destruction of society. Mm-hmm. Um, and this also applies to unmarried women. Yes. Um, so how did this view affect the, the real lives of the women that it applied to?
0: Well, I mean, women during that time, there were uh, social constructs that we c- were created across the board. There are all these different ideologies that women were supposed to meet. If a woman was at the appropriate age, if she was desired, she would obviously go into the, the role of the married mother. However, you do have these women that um, ended up as either fallen women who, who did delve into the world of prostitution, criminal behavior unmarried so obviously they were seen as what they would refer to as monstrous but then you would have the single women that again going back to what uh greg had mentioned about redundant women you had an influx of women who actually emigrated to um australia because they were single they were unable to find husbands within uh within england so they did emigrate and then you have the single women who became governesses um then you had the women who took care of their parents. Um, and then you have other women who just kind of fell to the wayside and were, were forgotten about. So across the board, it, it pretty much affected everyone in society at that point.
1: Right, and these single women, they're they're still seen in much the same way that that women who are viewed as morally degenerate, right? Like they're mm-hmm. still
0: ostracized. There was actually a quote, I, can, I don't remember exactly who it was, I don't have it in front of me. And one of the quotes, it was during, I want to say 1850s it said never trust a single woman. So that right there it speaks volumes. That's crazy. What do they think we're going to do
1: like we we need a guy <laughs> to keep us
0: in line. My god. <laughs> we're we're here to have kids and keep everything normal and happy. That's what we're supposed to do.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and never complain and never do anything else and for God's sake don't read too much. Who knows oh, what will happen.
0: <laughs> absolutely. That was another atrocity. Do not read because it will teach your mind bad things apparently.
1: Yeah, you'll you'll think too much and you'll realize <laughs> you're in a box. Um, so anyway, there were some uh, contradictory beliefs about female sexuality, right? It's something to be feared and controlled, but they seem to have also appreciated that sexual repression can lead to mental health issues. Mm-hmm. How did they square that? Uh, did they not appreciate that the sexual repression that they were creating was causing the problems they were
0: worried about? Oh, absolutely. They're There are so many contradictions uh, as you read the material and i did read several texts um i believe it was again forbes winslow uh thomas laycock who was also a physiologist during the 1840s they had talked about that um sexual repression is bad oh robert brudenell carter was another one as well sexual repression is bad but sexual aggression is even worse so they reached this happy medium that sexual expression as long as you're married is perfectly fine and it was but you had to indulge in your your husband's expectations your husband's desires anything above and beyond that was was too much wow yes talk about being in a restricted restricted box That is incredibly
1: restrictive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's like your sexual desire is okay, as long as it's as long as it's not too much, because I know, um, just a couple weeks ago, uh, we were talking about uh, women who were basically designated hysterical because they had too much sexual desire,
0: even within marriage,
1: you know, um, she's horny all the time, you know, there's something wrong with her
0: brain. Well, that was, um, absolutely, they did have uh, cures. And I use that term loosely because, mm. yikes. Um, Isaac Baker Brown, for example, uh, he wrote about in 1866, it was the curability of women. And it yeah. was talking, He what he actually did is he would have husbands who would come to him and say, my wife is sexually voracious. She needs to be controlled. So they started performing clitoridectomies on women as if they removed the clitoris, Obviously, the woman would fall in line, so that was his his cure all to fix broken women. That is oh. just horrific. Mm-hmm. It's
1: horrible. Yeah, we uh, we mentioned him on the show as well, and I oh god,
0: I mean like hell is too good for some people, honestly. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh <laughs> my god! And the fact that they called him a physician, and it was yeah. if you look at it, it's really not all that long ago.
1: No, and and, and not at all. Mm-mm. Gosh, it's just horrific. And, and, of course, they continued doing that into the 20th century yes. in places
0: as well. Mm-hmm. Man, probably the
1: less said about that, the better. My God. Yep, uh, yep.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's not a path oh. that we want to go down too far. <laughs> mm,
1: no, but, I mean, that's that's scarier than anything you could put into Gothic fiction, mm-hmm. and that actually happened. Yep. So, as you mentioned, a lot of women's health at this time, and and throughout history, in fact, uh, it, was, it was really focused on the uterus, and they thought that it had some pretty gnarly abilities right so apart from the obvious you know like giving birth what did they think that the uterus could do
0: oh yeah um so the uterus for many of the psychologists the physiologists um many of the physicians during that period they felt that the uterus was the source of all evil it Mm -hmm. would release um what i believe lamarck said was a nervous fluid so it was either Lamarck or Laycock. Um, it, it said, they said that it would release a nervous fluid throughout the woman's body. And what would happen, it would it would start affecting what uh, Laycock referred to as, obviously, during the time, the neurological system. He felt that in his physiological research, the uterus and the ovaries, because he had to incorporate those as well, um, would start releasing these fluids or these uh, energy-driven charges throughout the female body, and it would start out as physical, travel through ne- the neurological system, and then affect the psychological system. So he felt it was all part and parcel that it wasn't just the physical form being affected; it it was complete. It completely drove the psychological behavior as well. And they felt that because of these tendencies or because of the female reproductive system (laughs) um obviously hysteria was one of them nori was another however um i believe it was elliotson had written that it would drive women to um carnal uh to express their carnal instincts and by this he means hungering for raw flesh eating live kittens. Um, so basically we would not just be crazy. We would also be eating everything in existence. And that was, that was actually published in one of his, his medical texts.
1: And and that was just the 19th century. That's... Yes,
0: That right there was the cause for the werewolf chapter in my book. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's some old school, like bacchanalia stuff, yeah. you know, we're going to run mm-hmm. through the woods naked and have sex with each other and eat boys like <laughs> what the yep. hell <laughs> Yep. <laughs> okay all right so uh, now of course like you know we laugh about this obviously mm-hmm. because it is ridiculous but some of this stuff is just so terrifying I mean you okay. kind of have to laugh because they believe this stuff yes. right
0: I mean just the so- fact that they would think because essentially were horny we would start eating cats and biting our partners and just that's that just I, it makes me giggle <laughs> yeah i mean it kind
1: of has to oh my gosh but then like you have to look at kind of where some of this stuff was coming from right so right. like right away in chapter one you mentioned something that for for the first time in my life it made me drop a book and surprise <laughs> I, I i dropped it i was swearing <laughs> i underlined it i was like what the fuck, right? (laughs) So in an effort to push their idea of, uh, you know, so-called perfect femininity, they produced a lot of literature and instruction manuals about how a woman should behave, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So what I didn't realize is that doctors, like actual medical doctors, were referring to these texts to see how women are supposed to be, right? Not like medical Mm -hmm. studies or journals, but like popular fiction with an agenda, right? So what it's like, it's like a doctor now, like watching something on the Hallmark channel and being like, you don't look as happy as this lady. <laughs> you must be nuts. Right. Yeah. So this is crazy to me. So of course this had some, some serious real world consequences, right. It's basically guaranteed that women are not going to get proper medical care, no matter what they do. Um, and you mentioned there's a diagnosis like a neurasthenia, right. Yes. And when you look at the, the actual symptoms of it, it sounds a bit like POTS, right? Mm -hmm, Which is something that mm -hmm. people have, it's a real condition. It's predominantly seen in women and it's a neurological thing, which is, you know, I can guarantee you, it's not caused by the uterus, right? (laughs) Um, So what was the medical care for this kind of thing like? What are other kind of weird diagnoses that they might get? I know we were talking about hysteria, but how Mm -hmm. else were these things kind of treated?
0: Well, um, during that time, during the the early period or the uh, mid-Victorian period, when they started talking about the concepts of monomania, uh, Northenia, um, nymphomania was another one too. Basically, their concept during this time or their approach to it was hide it as much as you can. And Mm -hmm. I mean, you see that, uh, for example, with uh, in Jane Eyre with Bertha Mason. What did he do? He he locked Bertha in in a closet or an attic, essentially, because he was ashamed of her behavior, not realizing that he was mostly the root of her of her behavior. But that's what would happen, especially with the middle and upper classes, if mm-hmm. they if they wouldn't send them to um, if they wouldn't send them to asylums, um, even though I hate using that term, or uh, mm-hmm. away homes, um, like in Lady Audley. For example, when they send her away, um, it's basically to hide her, but to get her treatment. There were a lot of middle and upper class um, citizens that experienced this, that did not want to deal with putting their wives or, or partners into these away homes. So they would create uh, places at their own home and and lock them away and put them away for, for care. Now, um, as far as treatment goes, you see that start coming in in... Um, the mid to late uh, 19th century. Uh, like for example, Silas Weir Mitchell, um, he was an American physician. He started talking about the rest cure for mm-hmm. neurasthenia, And you'll start seeing that later on with uh, Freud and, and Brewer and all of them. Um, women, if they're feeling extremely stressed, if they're feeling overly anxious, um, if they're not feeling like their angelic self, they need to just rest. And mm-hmm. you start seeing that in um such texts as the yellow wallpaper when he when he yeah. locks her in the room. He's doing it so she can rest, which essentially creates more internal conflict than than actual rest and relaxation. Of course. Yeah. I mean, if I was
1: locked in a room, I think resting would be the last thing on my mind. And <laughs> we don't even know how many people this happened to, no. you know?
0: No, like I, I haven't gotten that far as far as statistical research, but I mean, there, I'm sure just from the, the popular, uh, asylums of the popular manners, there are mostly records for that. I'm sure we could trace. However, we can't trace the, the personal in family situations, uh, that were trying to be hidden. It's just horrific abuse for mm-hmm. so many years, for generations. Oh Yeah
1: gosh, it's horrible to even think about. God. Mm -hmm. So around this time, you do start to see these themes kind of coming out like in popular Gothic fiction. So Gothic fiction, I mean, um, as I mentioned before we started recording, it is my all-time favorite genre. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love it. So if we can kind of introduce it to people who might not be as familiar, what
0: is Gothic fiction? Okay, in its most simplest terms I can put it, um, basically gothic fiction, um, I would say it's an extension or a derivative of romanticism. Mm -hmm. Um, It comes about in the mid, was it the mid-1700s? It has a lot of idealizations about death and terror. There's elements of the supernatural in it, fear, and just... Obviously, you have the tropes, you have the the romantic elements in it. you have the the symbolic uh, the symbolic elements. you have the landscapes. there's a lot of nature that's embedded in it. I could go on for hours, but I'm not going to torture you. <laughs> <laughs> so that that pretty much just sums it up nice and concise. Okay. Oh and there's always that dark and brooding. Uh, uh, anti-hero that you have in the story, or the the wayward woman and the the villain. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely, all the best stuff. I love yeah. it. <laughs> so, um, how were monstrous women kind
0: of portrayed in these books, and uh, what were the authors trying to say by by including them? Well, that that really comes down to the author or the text itself, because you have there are several texts. For example, like if you look at um, Bertha Mason again, we're bringing it mm-hmm. back to Jane Eyre catherine earnshaw in wuthering heights and then even right down to the penny bloods or the penny dreadfuls which are Mm -hmm. essentially just plagiarized um offshoots of gothic fiction you have these women that were portrayed as monstrous and when i when i use the term monstrous when it applies to catherine or bertha or even agatha they're not monstrous they're called monstrous as they were seen during that period, we would look at them right now and say they were incredibly unhappy, repressed women, and this is their only outlet. So basically, in those type of texts where you have the hysterical woman, they're having exhibitions of psychosomatic um, outbreaks or an outrage. What they're trying to do in those texts, I think, for lack of a better term, it was it was a cry for a cry for help. This was the Brontes calling attention to the problems that women experienced during those time periods. And if you look at Catherine and her rebellious attitude in Wuthering Heights, what she wanted was nothing more than to be with Heathcliff. Heathcliff Mm -hmm. wasn't a valid or compatible companion for her based on her status or her middle, middle class status. Edgar was... Her, her chosen one, essentially. She didn't want that. She wanted the wildness of Heathcliff. Well, even in the text right there, she claims about how much she is Heathcliff. Heathcliff is her. They are one and the same. However, according to her station, she knows she has to marry Edgar Linton. So, mm-hmm. and after she declares that, you could see throughout the text, she progressively, she she degenerates, both mentally and physically, up until the point Where she has a child, you know, and she she dies shortly shortly thereafter. So she she succumbs to her misery. So Mm -hmm. basically, I I do I see those texts as as women shouting saying we're independent we're individual we have our own identities we want freedom. But then you have the other text if you look at um, the Wolf of Hearts Mountain, the Gray Wolf. And even uh, Wagner, the werewolf, you have the the female protagonists in those stories, Though the, those are the ones that transition into, well, not Nasida from Wagner, but the other two transition into wolves. And they're like Christina from um, The Wolf of Hearts Mountain, for example, she's destroyed at the end of the text because she tries to destroy the male patriarch of the family. She destroys his children. She's an infiltrator and she's seen as corruptive. So with that text or those type of texts, I believe what they're trying to do is allude to d- the destructive power of women. So there are different, different approaches to, to all the different ones throughout the chapters.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned Wuthering Heights. I I was dying to ask you about that. So um, Wuthering Heights is my favorite book. And whenever I say that to people, they always give me this look like, (laughs) are you sure? Um, So anyway, like opinion is really divided on it, right? Like people either like love it or hate it, but they always take it really literally. I wanted to, to ask you a little bit more about how you can read it maybe in a different way, right? How else can we can we look at Wuthering Heights apart from just like as like this is a literal love story? This is what
0: happened. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that we can say about that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I can I can go on for hours when it comes to Wuthering Heights. I am absolutely fascinated with Catherine Earnshaw. Everybody always goes to Heathcliff. They focus on Heathcliff or they focus on Isabella. I am I'm pro Catherine. I love her rebellious attitude from the time she was a child up until the point that she passed on there are so many ways that you can interpret her character. Again, she's she's kind of seen as this material semiotic figuration of, of the monstrous woman. She is what Emily Bronte is trying to, to say about women during that time, the, the sufferings that they have to deal with. And you could see that right down to, um, her portrayal when, um, at the point where she's she's injured as a child and she has to say stay at the Linton residence, when she returns back to Wuthering Heights, you could see in her appearance the way the way she's described, she no longer is what what Bronte called the wild hatless little savage. She becomes this eloquent, I uh, feminine ideal. She shows up in uh, like a fur a fur coat or a shawl. She has she has gloves on, and in order to enter Wuthering Heights back in the manor, she actually has to remove all of that cl- those clothes, those artificial clothing pieces that makes her into the the fancy lady figure, to mm-hmm. to enter back into Wuthering Heights. So you have that right there. But then also later, if you look at her um, outpouring or her outcrying, there's definitely a sense of the eco gothic that that occurs at that moment that. Heathcliff overhears her declaring her engagement to Nelly. he disappears. He runs off into the night. When Catherine notices this, she starts having um, significant emotions. I hate using the term hysteria because we were always tagged with it when we have emotional outpouring. So she has sh- uh, strong emotions towards Heathcliff's exit. And what I mean by the eco-gothic is you could start seeing her emotions reflected in the environment, in the atmosphere at the Mm -hmm. moment she starts crying and she's uncontrollably crying there's a significant storm that blows into wuthering heights so Mm -hmm. i love that element that you can read it from that different mode to that different perspective and then also later on there's a different way you can analyze her figure as well when um she she gets ill she's at the linton residence she's no longer Catherine earnshaw she's mrs linton they portray her as the Ophelia figure um, as she suffers from monomania, she's in the long flowing white gown, she's fatigued, she's weak, she's almost to the point where she's, she's borderline hallucinating. So I mean there are all these different approaches just for her character alone, and that's mm-hmm. without, all, uh, without interpreting all the other characters involved. So. yeah it's incredible um
1: i keep thinking about you know of course right before she passes away she's you know very insistent on opening the window yes you know so she can feel like she's going back there right and it's all about mm-hmm. the wind and they kind of want to keep closing the window and keeping yep. her kind
0: of shut in right Yep. so there's oh that conne- there's that connection to nature again she wants mm-hmm. to return to her natural self back to the moors and again even right down to her death they're restricting that yeah and they want to keep her shut in mm-hmm.
1: Man, I think it's time for a rewatch. Do you have a a favorite movie version of it? I gotta ask.
0: Oh yeah, I do. And I get so much shit for for the one I'm about to say. I absolutely love the one with um, Tom Hardy and and Charlotte Riley.
1: (laughs) Yes, that's my favorite.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Finally, usually I I get the weird stares from people when I say that,
1: (laughs) but I I adore that one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, me too. (laughs) That one's so good. Oh my goodness. So of course, you also mentioned uh, Bertha Mason and Jane Eyre. Okay, so we have another Bronte book. So was Bertha truly monstrous? And I know we already kind of talked about this a little bit. Or do you think it would be a reasonable response to burn down your house if your husband locked you in the attic so he can get off with the governess?
0: Well, I'm not going to answer that last question because... (laughs) hypothetically if anything happens in the future i don't want anybody knocking on my door (laughs) (laughs) but i really feel um with the case of bertha mason considering she does not have her own voice her entire Mm. story was told by rochester so it's really i'm really hard pressed to believe that she had such a shift when he met her and then all of a sudden she turned into what he called like a, a a babbling goblin or something close to that he just paints her in such a grotesque light that he couldn't stand to be around her anymore so he had to lock her up i i don't know i'm just i really feel and this is after reading a wide sargasso sea by reese she goes ahead and she rewrites bertha's history as antoinette mason from her perspective so I, I am biased towards that because I love Bertha Mason and if I can read that that's more told from her voice than from Rochester's I'm, I'm happy there but again with um, going back to Jane Eyre I really feel like Bertha was not a monster I feel like she was um, a mirror of Rochester and he complains about her overt sexuality and her abrasiveness but he what he neglects to say Is that everything that he complained about with Bertha as a relationship persisted, it was the exact, his exact identity, just mirrored Mm -hmm. in female form. So he was allowed to feel like that and go, what did he say, running rampant through the continent after he was a free man. She wanted to do the same thing except with her husband and he kind of rejected her in that sense. And she was, she was actually the starting point to my research it was early on in my my academic career. I wrote a paper about Bertha Mason and her sexual repression. Mm-hmm. I got a really bad grade in that class because oh, no. my professor said there is nothing to do about psycho- psychology and feminism in Jane Eyre. So he, gave, yeah, thank you. Um, he gave me a really bad grade, and I made it my life work to write uh, my PhD and my my book about Bertha Mason but yeah so i feel very strongly about her and her and her repression i feel as if her repression made her what she was and i'm not going to say it's okay to uh burn down your husband's house because he um he locked you up and he cheated on you although she might wanted to push him off the roof when she went off the roof i'm just saying <laughs> just just saying you know i mean like you can you can see it
1: and as you mentioned you know these are all qualities that rochester has but it's okay for a man to have them it's Mm -hmm. not okay for a woman to because she's supposed to be like a domestic goddess and all that i mean it does actually kind of make
0: you worry about jane you know Mm -hmm. like is jane gonna be okay after the book's over well that's the thing i think what had happened is there was that transition at the end where Yes, Jane became an independent woman, she had her own fortunes, she had her own personality as well. But if you look at Jane, Jane kind of had, I wanted to say a neutral behavior. She wasn't aggressive. So Mm -hmm. she wasn't mirroring Rochester's personality. So I think Jane held her own at the end.
1: So apart from madness unchecked female sexuality was also portrayed as leading to criminality and as you mentioned lycanthropy, right so women turning into werewolves like literally turning into werewolves yes. uh that is quite a leap so how did they get to the werewolf thing and how can one turn into a werewolf asking for a friend <laughs> um,
0: well there is a complete um if you look there's a progression um in it, and i write about it in the book if you'll notice as the chapters go on in the book, the women get progressively more monstrous. In the first chapter, obviously, I just give the the guidelines of what it's like to be a proper Victorian angel and what happens if you're not. Then I follow up with chapter two that talks all about hysteria and madness, Mm -hmm. which is, I want to say, the more manageable monstrosity of, of women. Then we move into the following chapter which is just focused on the female criminal. You have there you have lady audley, you have mrs lovett from sweeney todd or the string of pearls. um and yeah, they're not exactly as manageable as as the hysterical women. they they could be a little bit manageable. However, if you look at the women in those texts, again going back to lady audley, they sent her away to the maison d'ence. They just locked her away. Mrs. Lovett died at the end because they poisoned her. There was a point of no return for Mrs. Lovett. She was involved with butchering and cooking people into pies. So there was no return. Uh, Lady Audley, on the other hand, was just had another identity. She was just trying to be become something she wasn't. Then you move on to the she-wolf or the werewolf chapter. In there, you have, like I said, going back to the white wolf, Christina, from that. She wasn't a woman who transitioned into a werewolf she was a werewolf who transitioned into a woman and infiltrated a victorian home so right there for that she needed to be eradicated there was no resolution for her there was no way to make her um to put her on that pedestal there she could not fit into the prescribed role the young woman from um the gray wolf story there was difference with her she was already banished and exiled because she transformed from woman to wolf there was no control over her however she was not trying to destroy the victorian home so she was exiled she was allowed to live live on in nature in in the woods then you have nesita from wagner's werewolf or wagner the werewolf she started off as an upper class woman she got involved with wagner who was the werewolf so Right there, that's, you're, you're crossing the boundaries. There's a little bit of transgression occurring there. She didn't know that he was a werewolf, but she also had a criminal element to herself. Well, at the very end, she gets impregnated by him. There's no resolution for her at that point. She's impregnated by a werewolf. Her lineage is corrupted. So at the end, both her and Wagner die as well. So there's this whole, that's the whole transition of that is, into the she wolves or the werewolves there's no controlling those women that's a form of monstrosity that transgresses into the absolute point of no return so they all have to be eradicated so to speak and if there was a way to turn into a werewolf at this point, I really, I'll, I'll email you the secret if I discover it, because I really would like that as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, let me know. <laughs> yeah, sounds great. Uh, some days more than others, man.
0: <laughs> but I really feel like the the werewolf books that you see, even, even the later ones that come out by Clements Hausman, um, they're all about the woman transitioning into wolves. And you see that in the later period, Because you start having, you know, the movements that come in in the late 19th century, the women's suffrage movement, women are starting to gather power, and they're Mm -hmm. starting to make it known that they are powerful. So I feel that the werewolf stories are starting to reflect society's fear of women's power.
1: Given that women who did not fit into these prescribed rules or or struggled with what society said that they should be, so basically all women to some Mm -hmm. extent, Um, they were seen as kind of inherently mad, right? Can madness really be applied to half of the population? Or what does this tell us about
0: men's anxieties during this time? Well, according to them, during that period, all of us had the potential to be mad, to Mm -hmm. either develop insanity, uh, criminal perspectives, which also goes into the, the phrenology later on in the period, talking about the way our appearance, our skull structure, everything. We're not going to go into that. Um, <laughs> but I mean, if you really look at it, all of these women, according to men, you know, from Lamarck to Darwin to Laycock to Carter, we all have the potential for madness. We're fighting with a fragile balance because of our biological systems. The slightest mm-hmm. thing from puberty to pregnancy to menopause to, to being horny to being sad to too much exercise can push us over, over the line. So really, you do have to question who suffered from madness more, the women who were dealing with being put in the prescribed roles or the men who were constructing these prescribed roles based off of fiction they were reading? Yeah, that's
1: a great way to put it, right? And and is it madness or is this what happens when you force us to live in a box that was never meant for us? It's not realistic. It. Not at all. No, this is just this is our retaliation. Yeah. And then uh, and you see that reflected in in fiction in kind of exaggerated
0: ways mm-hmm. and it's it's thrilling, you know. Elaine Showalter for example, she writes uh she wrote something that was a little eye-opening for me regarding that feedback loop and talking about how gothic fiction actually informed a lot of Sigmund Freud's work later on. Oh. I would, I would highly recommend um, uh, looking into that. It it was just, it was an interesting read and it, it really opens your eyes.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, Do you have any um, good kind of gothic classics that
0: you can recommend to us that we can read about more of this? I have been, delving a lot more into the penny bloods and the penny dreadfuls so um i have a lot of them there's um for example 1841 text by an anonymous author called wizard um yeah it's called the wild witch of the heath or the demoness of the glen it's obviously about a a witch and it's a woman who lives in the woods she's shunned by society Um, she controls the elements of nature she's an over-the-top monstrous woman however at the very end of the tale high figures from society go to her for assistance she assists them and then she turns around retaliates against them and destroys them it's it's a wonderful book I highly recommend it that sounds fantastic yeah (laughs) not not the best written book as it was you know one of the penny publications but it, it the content was was amazing but it had a happy ending. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. This is so interesting.
1: Um so this is a little off-kilter, but I'm just thinking about it now. So to to what extent did women help to enforce this? Of course, this is you know something that's being, you know, kind of applied to all women, right? But mm-hmm you know, in order to kind of set yourself apart is like, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not like those mad women. I'm, I'm a very, you know, kind of like good domestic goddess type. Mm-hmm. Did other women, you know, participate in the oppression of, of fellow oh, yeah. women?
0: Absolutely. And that's uh, Isabella Brayton, for example, Sarah, going back to Sarah Stickney Ellis, they, they were creating these guides, these conduct books. You had um, Young. She wrote fiction. Um, she was very much uh, a part of the church and she wrote moral tales of women doing the right thing. And the outcome is, is a a positive outcome. So you did, you had a lot of these women that would write texts and publish them, uh, to kind of guide other women on the right path. Mm. So it wasn't always successful, but I mean, if you look at, at Victorian society, you had a, a lot of women who, I guess, self-policed themselves because they were doing what was expected of their family. Their Their parents wanted them to marry and procreate. So that's what they did.
1: Yeah. And it, it's self-preservation to mm-hmm. to some extent, but, you know, you can still be like the kind of perfect kind of domestic angel or whatever, mm-hmm. and you can still get locked in the attic.
0: Oh, uh, that would have been me. I I would have been, I'm not the perfect domestic angel, but I would have been trapped in an attic somewhere, I think.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think I would have been in the woods. (laughs) Well, it's, it's just so sad. It's so tragic, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and I don't know if these women weren't aware or, you know, maybe they, they couldn't see that we're all kind of in the same box, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's, that's it. Exactly. It's when you're kind of restricted like that, you don't know it's such a touchy subject because you're supposed to behave according to your prescribed role so Mm -hmm. how do you know who you can speak with about it who's on the same page and that you actually start seeing in the the late the late 19th century you start seeing women band together because they eventually come together and realize they're all unhappy or not not all but there are a significant amount that are unhappy yeah
1: and we're in the same boat and Mm -hmm. uh you know, strength in numbers.
0: Mm-hmm. Maybe if we
1: band together, maybe we will throw over society, right? Yeah. Yeah, we absolutely. can only hope. <laughs> so gosh, well, this has been such an interesting conversation. I mean, I, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed it.
0: Um, so yes, where, thank you. Where can we find more about you and your work? <clears throat> well, I do have a professional website. It's just Um, I usually keep that very much up to date. Okay, I lied. I haven't updated it in about two weeks. Um, <laughs> I usually keep it up to date. Um, there you could find out all of my my works that are coming out, the conferences, any talks that I'm doing. Yeah. So
1: Well, we will absolutely look forward to that. Well, gosh, I mean again, thank you so much. This has been completely eye-opening. Well, thank you for the
0: invitation. I really enjoyed myself.
1: Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Nicole Dittmer for joining us today. Her new book is Monstrous Women and Ecofeminism in the Victorian Gothic, 1837-1871, and you can find her at NicoleDittmer.com. As a special bonus this week, we have merch! Inspired by Nicole's comment that Victorian society thought the uterus was the source of all evil, I made some demon uterus t-shirts. Because, of course... And there are stickers and tote bags and anything else that you could want a demon uterus on. It's like a band logo, but it's a history reference, and it doesn't get much cooler than that. They're all up on TeePublic now, and I'll link to them in our social media. This week, as always, I'd like to thank our marvelous patrons on Patreon. Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, Alexis Diamond, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Rose Little, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Catherine Rowley-Williams, Icy Sedgwick, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. You can also rate, review, and subscribe, or find us on Facebook and Instagram at History. We'll post photos from today's show on Instagram, along from that merch I mentioned. So uh, if you ever wanted to see what a, a demon uterus looks like, hop over on our Instagram at Dirty Sexy History. <laughs> we have also joined Mastodon at Dirty Sexy History at toot.whales. So if you're there, come by and say hello. You can also find us and our six years of post archives on our website at, you guessed it, dirtysexyhistory.com. See you guys next time.